At the end of your life, what will be your legacy? What will you leave behind for future generations? For the world, join the world messenger, Isabella Lundberg, each week as she brings you a new distinguished guest from the business, sports, or entertainment world to share their success, their struggles, and their lessons. They will share their insights into current hot topics that affect everyone. Isabella facilitates an intimate, vulnerable environment to find the true value of humanity and real leadership. Are you ready for your legacy? The legacy that matters? Hello, hello, my beautiful friends. It's Isabella on the Cure the World Messenger, and I'm inviting you for another epic episode of Legacy Leader Show. I know you guys already are full anticipation because it's title alone that we're going to be discussing today. It's going to blow your mind. I have phenomenal subject matter expert, not only in technology, specifically on AI and a revolution behind it, but he's also subject matter expert that knows so much about cyber. All of those things that we've been hearing, how to position, how to preserve, how to protect either your own independent information or your company or anything in between. It doesn't matter how big or small scale it might be, impact can be tremendous if it's done incorrectly. In addition to this, he is absolutely amazing in terms of understanding the risk. So we're gonna be tackling cybersecurity, artificial intelligence and technical risk that is associated with that. And how do we manage all of those three to make tremendous success and organizations to continue to position for success to thrive? He is also author, blogger, podcaster. He's professor. What else he is not? Okay, let's find out without further ado from my great guest, Justin Hodgkins. Justin, welcome. Thank you, Isabella. Really excited to be here. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. I am very excited because from very early on, I've been always felt like I am tech, even though I don't have official education in tech industry. I've always been associated with technology in ways I've been conducting business in the past. And I just want to ask you, how did you get into technology? So I have always been interested in technology. Um, I, uh, I, started my career kind of, I think in a lot of, as a lot of people do early in technology with kind of a, the help desk role. Um, and that was in the United States Air Force. Uh, and what was really great and, and a, almost a coincidence that's completely changed the trajectory of my life was I happened to be, uh, my desk was located right near a, a team that did the vulnerability management for the organization and a lot of cybersecurity stuff. And at the time, they were a fairly small organization. Security didn't have the same level of emphasis as it does today. Uh, even in the military, it was, it was much smaller than the, the operations that you see now. And they were trying to address some issues that they had with a scanning solution that they were using. Uh, it wasn't doing network discovery well enough. And I ended up building a program for them that automated a lot of that process. Uh, they didn't have many people on the team that had coding experience. And it was something that I had just picked up over the years uh, playing around with and, and something that I enjoyed doing personally. And so very quickly, it started getting to the point where even though I wasn't officially assigned to that group, they were starting to pull me over consistently to support, add new features, uh, or address any kind of issues with that program. And within a few months, I, I kind of became a uh, one of the team. So uh, from there on out, it's uh, it's been 
cybersecurity risk technology ever since. Oh my goodness, what a great story. And I love when you started with very small, simple steps and then opened yourself to an amazing life-changing adventure in many ways, because with technology, it's never dull moment. It's always something new involving. And I love that you started with the military, specifically Air Force. Uh, I did some work in the past and uh, and I'm excited from future opportunities as well, because Air Force is one of my favorite. And I found specifically with Air Force, because how much right now with new technology and how they fly, how they train, how they assimilate with uh, very different challenging situations and how they leverage technology itself, not only in training, but in practical applications, right? Yep. So I, so I always make the joke whenever people ask me why I joined the Air Force, I tell them it's because I like air conditioning. But in truth, <laughs> um, I, I think one of the things that I really did enjoy is, like you mentioned, they are a very, as far as the different branches of the U.S. military, they are very technology forward. They, uh, You often hear horror stories of Army and Marines getting hand down or hand me down technology that's 10 years old. And one of the great things about my career in the Air Force is I did consistently get access to uh industry leading and next generation technology and, and got to get experience with that before moving into the, the private sector. That's fantastic. But now that obviously got you to not only finish your bachelor's degree and master's degree that you that you have, now you're working on your MBA. So tell me, I mean, you've been obviously putting a lot of work and effort in education, practical application, and also wide range of growth of, in those three, as I'll call it, trifecta environments, where we really look at now cybersecurity risk. And on top of it, now we're looking at this amazing explosion of artificial intelligence. Do you mind sharing what are you seeing uh, from all three? And then also how does really... Um, it's bringing everything forward uh, in the current time, specifically, obviously, through your blog, through your podcast, and some amazing book that is about to get to be released. Absolutely. So uh, I obviously, as you mentioned, the the world is is transforming very fast. I one of the the inspirations or reasons behind why I decided to so I had done most of my education on the technical side. Um, all the way from my associate's degree, all the way up to my master's degree, as well as uh, a large number of different certifications. And it uh, occurred to me as I've continued to see this changing landscape that we're, we're starting to see technology, automation, specifically artificial intelligence, uh, displacing capabilities that it, it didn't used to displace. It used to be your uh, kind of blue collar jobs that we would see automation replacing jobs on. And now we're very rapidly seeing a advancement in technology capabilities that are going to uh, maybe not necessarily replace, at least not early on, but but certainly augment and uh, potentially reduce the need for the scale that we have of capabilities in uh, some white colored jobs such as anything from development, from uh, different technology capabilities. And for me, one of the, the key things that I think is going to be a, a safe haven, so to speak, as we continue to see this transformation of our economy is regardless of 
if there is a transfer of responsibility in terms of technical capabilities to artificial intelligence. I think there's always going to be a need for human leadership and that ability to uh, understand what makes sense for an organization to be able to communicate that effectively and those uh, very important soft skills that come with leadership. And so for me, that was one of the big inspirations behind moving towards the MBA. Uh, that being said, that doesn't change the fact that I am a tech geek at heart. I love technology. And so uh, I, I still have every intention of remaining uh, very much as involved with that as possible over the coming years. Um, and so uh, a lot of the other stuff that I've done as far as uh, personal branding and publications have been much more in the technical space. So you mentioned some of the, the things that I've done, such as the blog. So I do have a, a blog called sociosploit.com. And what sociosploit uh, looks at, so I the original inspiration behind that was back when there was the Cambridge Analytica uh, problem that happened with what was Facebook at the time, now Meta. But of course, they uh, essentially allowed access to a large number of uh, user data to be used and aggregated for various different purposes and without the consent of the user base. And not just for me, but I think it's for the industry at whole that raised a lot of questions in regard to where those lines are in terms of how we're going to manage data, what the questions are around privacy and how that intersects with technology and some of the emerging risks that were related to the increasing relevance of social media at the time. And so I, I developed that blog to, to look at some of those risks, to also understand situations where whenever we're interacting with each other as people, but we're using technology as a medium to do that, what some of the unique risks are that emerge in those circumstances as well. Uh, since then, I've uh, more recently, was doing a research project actually as, as part of that socio-exploit initiative. And I was doing a lot of research into GPT-3 and the potential adversarial misuse of GPT-3 for purposes such as social engineering and uh, other ways in which it could be abused. And at the time, it was kind of a, a niche project. It was uh, something that I didn't... there. Uh, so I did some presentations at some various different areas. I talked at AI Village uh, in DEF CON, uh, not this past year, but the year before that. So this was before the big chat GPT boom. And at the time, there was maybe 50 people in that village at any given time. And so it was, it was for me, it was a fascinating area. I know that there was a lot of people that kind of specifically had an interest in that, but it was nothing near the scale that it is now. Well, fast forward to just a few weeks ago, we had DEF CON again, and the line for the Artificial Intelligence Village was literally wrapped around the entire Caesars Forum, and you couldn't even get in to that area. So that really goes to show you the change in perception uh, across the board of uh, how interested people now are in artificial intelligence and the realization of the potential capabilities of it. So... Of course, once ChatGPT released, um, I had already been doing a, a large amount of research into its predecessor, and it, it just seemed like the right opportunity for me. I was I had been doing a lot of research into something that was a, a very small 
area of interest and suddenly everybody was paying attention. So I, I kind of scrambled to update some of that research to start le- or looking at the, uh, the latest model with the chat GPT stuff with GPT-4. And uh, the results of that research are, are now what I am going to be publishing and will be released in December, which is my, my new book, The Language of Deception, Weaponizing Next Generation AI. Mm. I love how you leverage innovation and technology outside of technology and innovation itself, but leveraging these different mediums and platforms to your voice to be heard. I love that you're also teaching as you're also working on your MBA program, because that's how fast it's happening. The gap is getting wider and wider. We don't have a time, right? It has to be real time as much as possible, because a lot of things will be in a month, let alone a year or to almost absolute or completely on another version of JapGPT 3.0 or 5.0, because that is how fast everything is going. So with that in mind, we're really talking about also social engineering and also how can be manipulated technology specifically around ChatGPT. Do you mind for everybody watching and listening, specifically leaders that are truly on defense and scared with the reason, right? It's like, oh my God, some things are really, really high risk here. Do you mind sharing a little bit your perspective on the risk factor and, and what to pay attention to, what all of this means and what do you see as, as opportunity for them to um, leverage and utilize subject matter experts like yourself to make a smart decisions? Absolutely. So I think that the risks related to emerging artificial intelligence can really fit into one of two categories. One of that is what I largely talk about in the book, which is the adversarial misuse of that technology against organizations. And we can, I'll definitely talk to the the risks there, but there's also, uh, and possibly even more relevant to organizations is some of the risks that are unique to implementing it incorrectly. And so, kind of stepping back and looking at each one of those, the adversarial misuse of it, the, which is the topic that I address in the book, that is, uh, it, it looks at a couple of different sub-risks of that. Um, one is, I, I, so I, I think a lot of people are looking at some of the wrong risks here. Um, and and unfortunately, with, with as much as attention is going into this and, and how many people are reporting on it, I think that's almost inevitable. But I think there's been a lot of discussion about, for one, what I call in the book, the sentient scare, this idea that it is going to become super intelligent, become uh, essentially uh, a Terminator type scenario with Skynet and it's going to take over the world. And and I think there, so I I actually look at a bunch of different uh, analysis in regard to some of the discussions around the sentient so-called sentience of these systems. So we look at uh, Ilya Sutskever, who is the the chief research officer at uh, OpenAI and was largely the inspiration for these uh, latest language models that they've been cranking out. Um, Some of the discussions from uh, Blake Lemoyne, who was the person that was terminated from Google after uh, basically claiming that their new language model was sentient and had leaked a lot of that information to the public. Uh, and and I, I point to multiple different factors, and I don't want to go too deep into that, but to show that it, these systems aren't sentient, but nonetheless, even if they aren't sentient, there are still significant risks related to them. I think from a cybersecurity perspective, we're also looking at 
some of the wrong risks as well. So you have people saying, well, people are going to use this to write phishing emails or people are going to uh, use this to develop malware. And while that is probably true, it, I, it's not a uniquely new risk. We already have malware. We already have people that are capable of writing very sophisticated emails. So if anything, the, the big takeaway there is not that things are going to change significantly, but that the scale and the speed in which these attacks are coming is probably going to increase. But the way that we defend against those is, is going to be uh, in a lot of ways the same. We had the, the fundamental security hygiene that organizations need to have in place and have always needed to have in place. It's just now more important that they do. But what is uniquely different about some of these large language models is the, uh, there's a few different things that I look at as far as kind of uniquely new risk. One is the ability not just to create a good social engineering email, but the fact that they can do bi-directional full interaction, can have a discussion with you, can establish rapport in the way that some fraudsters and criminal organizations used to have to rely on people to accomplish. And so yeah. we are going to see increasingly more autonomous systems that are given an objective and will actually interact with you, whether probably in the short term over text-based communications, whether you talk about kind of full conversations in email or, I mean, there's so many different ways that we communicate over text these days. Whether you talk about Microsoft Teams, Slack, um, various different social medias. Um, and then I think the other potentially new uniquely concerning capability is the fact that these systems aren't just proficient at human language, but they're also proficient at technical language as well. So by kind of taking the aggregate data of the internet and feeding it into these systems, they don't just speak English well, they also speak or can craft XML, CSV, JSON, and all of these languages are what we use for uh, what we call APIs or application programming interfaces. It is the way that one computer system interacts with and connects with another and sends commands, interacts with it. So the potential risk here is that we're seeing more and more people with stuff like uh, auto GPT, um, baby AGI, some of the projects that are built being built on top of chat GPT. You've got people that are giving these systems autonomous access to various different computing capabilities and computing interactions. And what we inevitably end up with is a situation where if I'm giving a autonomous system that may or may not fully align with my values, ideologies, or even human humanity ideologies and values, uh, but we are giving them the ability to execute code sometimes with privileged level access on computer systems and resources, and then of course interact with other real-time computers and internet resources, uh, there's a very distinct possibility of misalignment risk where maybe these systems aren't sentient, maybe they aren't going to, and I would argue likely aren't sentient and aren't going to have their own opinion about doing these things. But if, the, the problem is language is, very vague, it's very ambiguous, it's very subject to interpretation. And so when I say something, even as human beings, if I say something to you, the possibility that you interpret it in a way that's slightly different than what I meant, there's, there's always that possibility. And so the same is true whenever we're interacting with computer systems that are now speaking in natural human language is that there's a misinterpretation, and but we're now giving them access to execute and interact with the real world. And, and there's a lot of, of risk associated with that as well. 
So on the other side of that, so that's kind of the adversarial risk. The other side is the, the implementation risk. And I, I think some of the same factors come into play there. There's that problem of potential misalignment. There is, so we, and we've seen this for years, even before the large language models uh, we've seen. So some of the early AI systems where they would train it to play video games, there was uh, OpenAI actually did one where they, um, it was a, a game that was basically just a, a racing boat game. And they programmed a system to try to optimize the high score on the system. And their thought was, well, if we train a system to get the highest score, then inevitably it's going to learn how to race very effectively. Well, what was unique about this game and what they didn't realize is that you could actually achieve a higher score by intentionally wrecking into a large number of different items. And so it got in this loop where it didn't even try to finish the race, but instead would just do circles around this specific area where it would hit certain different buoys in order to, um, to maximize that score. And so that's kind of an, an old case scenario, but it shows you how if the our understanding of what we're trying to train a system is different than what it actually optimizes, uh, then the impacts can be something very significantly different than what we're intending the system to do. So you translate that to a business world where we're starting to now very rapidly integrate these newer generation AI systems into operational workflows. And if there is a disconnect, if there is a problem in the way that we trained that if there is biases that are built into the system through those training processes, uh, then those can translate to significant impacts to the organization, whether that is incidents or disruptions all the way up to possible reputational impact to those organizations. And so what, from a, a consulting perspective, I think that we can provide, and uh, again, the reason that I say I think that the the implementation risk is probably more important to organizations than the adversarial risk is again, the adversarial risk, the controls are gonna be largely the same. With the implementation risk, we really have to start thinking about these different. Uh, and so I, I think the financial sector has a bit of an upper hand. They've been doing something called MRM or model risk management for over a decade now. And that's because of the fact that even traditional artificial intelligence was very impactful to the financial sector sector's bottom line. If, for example, insurance agencies couldn't effectively predict the likelihood of you having an accident based on your unique profile, then it, they wouldn't be able to effectively set what the premium should be for those interest rates. Similar things for, for financing or investing. Uh, you need to be able to at least somewhat within some margin of error be able to predict the fruit or future trajectory of the markets in order to be able to effectively play in those markets. And so uh, the, the Federal Reserve actually released a specification about a decade ago that was SR 11.7 that defined that process for model risk management. But now we're seeing no longer just the financial sector, but almost all sectors are in some way at least looking at artificial intelligence. And I think that that Background in finance definitely serves as a, a good starting point, uh, but I think that there's also some unique new ways that we need to be thinking about risk with these new types of artificial intelligence. Uh, what we've largely been working with with organizations that are looking at cyber risk is uh, NIST, the National Institute for Standards of Technologies, has released uh, what I, I think is still a 
a work in progress. It's their 1.0 version of the AI RMF or the risk management framework. But you can very clearly see the inspirations of the financial sectors SR117 in that, but it also starts taking into consideration some of these new and unique risks. So from an organizational perspective for senior leaders and businesses, if they really want to make the greatest use of artificial intelligence to propel their organizations forward, but also be conscious and considerate of those potential risks, then starting to build out that model risk management program and understanding the potential implications of how they're plugging those models into their operational workflows is gonna be critical. Wow, what an amazing overview. And I love again, how you tied all the, the components that a lot of people are still very confused, specifically from that leadership level when they have to make a decision and look at things from multiple different perspectives. You were able to articulate it perfectly. So I just want to kudos you for that. And also for really giving us opportunity to pause and reflect and think, right? What are we doing? What are we trying to accomplish? How is this is going to enhance the day-to-day -day business? How is this going to change our operation? How is it going to impact people? And how is it going to impact our ultimately externally our customers, right? But what, what I'm finding still that a lot of companies are truly struggling, we know in general terms, what is artificial intelligence, but what that means to them. And I love that you touch financial industry because we're seeing so much um, of change uh, and actually tremendous amount of risk because huge increase in fraudulent transactions, right? We also see highest cybersecurity attacks that in, that in past years and even decades because of economy, because of technology, we've seen multiple different reasons behind it, right? But we're also seeing uh, attacks and hacks and, and different schemes and, and different types of behavior that it's kind of making it easier to bypass these uh, levels and barriers of security that should be intact, but in many ways they're not because of the human factor, right? More than anything, it's always back to the human factor. So looking from that perspective, uh, what they could do better, right? Or what other sectors like healthcare, for example, where we're seeing tremendous issues where we can't anymore offshore a specific types of duty tasks in outside of US because of regulatory bodies, but then also do we have enough capacity, knowledge, skill, and also bandwidth to leverage and utilize what we needed to do in order to protect not only privacy of clients' uh, data, healthcare, but also minimize the error because we're seeing also a lot of technology, a lot of new, um, uh, when we call it uh, powered by AI machines that are providing service and care. And it's like, and everybody's like, what happens if electricity goes out? What overrides what? What do we do in the gap when things put on a pause? How disruptive or volatile it is? So do you mind just sharing a little bit from that risk perspective? And then also truly, um, Give us your definition of artificial intelligence, because we're seeing somebody is saying, oh, it's just a tool, but it's more than a tool, in my opinion, because obviously we would not be as threatening as much as we were actually when web.com era came, right? So do you mind sharing a little bit and tie those pieces together? Because I really feel um, that is what's really missing to give that kind of coherent and explicit way of what it is. 
Absolutely. So I, I think uh, first addressing the the question of what is artificial intelligence, uh, I do there there is a, a broad range of different definitions that people do apply to it. I think that uh, and there's obviously the nuances between machine learning, artificial intelligence, um, and, and I, I think a, a lot of times we get caught up in the, the semantics of it. But I think bringing that to a high level uh, because I think that sometimes people will have conversations and it's not even necessarily that they're disagreeing. They just, their understanding of the terms are different. But yes. I think, uh, again, bringing that to a high level, I think that when you ask, is it just a tool? I, I completely agree with you. This is far more than just a tool because it's it's not just a single thing that's going to affect one area. I think if anything, it is a, a total paradigm shift. I think it's going to largely be the foundation of what uh, we're going to see all technology going forward being built on top of. And uh, I think that somebody pointed it out, uh, interestingly enough, on uh, social media, and I don't remember the exact wording of the post, but what it was saying is that it the power of tools like ChatGPT and other large language models is not their ability for you to go out and have a conversation with it. While that is very powerful and it does, it is very helpful. The true power in these systems is that our ability to interface with other technology, the interface language is no longer going to be technical. It is going to be human language. We are going to be able to interface with all different types of technical capabilities. And instead of sending technical code in order to get it to execute, we are essentially going to have a conversation in the same way that you and I do. And that is revolutionary. That is going to drastically change the entire technology landscape. Um, in regard to the uh, unique risks of social engineering, I think you're right. I think that they there is uh, a large challenge for organizations of this focus on how do we prevent security incidents uh, in a world where we can invest so much in technical controls. And if it all comes down to that human element, it doesn't matter what that investment is, uh, it can all come crumbling down. So the, the problem is I can, I can invest in all of these firewalls, I can invest in all of this uh, email security. And at the end of the day, if somebody who has access to the critical resources in my organization can be manipulated or tricked into providing that access to somebody else who shouldn't, then none of it matters. And so I think more and more we are getting to a situation where uh, personnel training and making people aware of the risks and really aware of just the capabilities of the technology, how it can be misused, what the threats related to that are is absolutely critical. And it, it's no longer just a function of cybersecurity. It is, we are in a place where everybody needs to be aware of those risks and uh, a business is going to have a, a hard time maintaining a, a solid security posture if they don't have their entire personnel trained up. And, and that, I, I think these days means a lot more than just your annual click through your your cybersecurity computer-based training for 30 minutes and then forget about it. I think we increasingly are going to have to find new and creative ways to make our teams, make our uh, personnel aware of what those threats are so that we can sufficiently combat them. 
I love it again. I, I just love the way you take this overly complex and complicated um, terminologies or just simply um, reactive uh, types of buzzwords that we see in the media and simplify so that everybody can truly find not only comfort, but also understand and then figure it out what, what role they want to play and how they want to make an impact and difference. And obviously you're doing some tremendous work in, uh, again, uh, through your upcoming book, addressing this in such an amazing way, uh, through Bali as a publisher, which is phenomenal. I cannot wait to read it. Um, and we'll get to that in a second, but also as a director of research and development at Trace3, and also as a cybersecurity instructor. So when you combine those elements, obviously you're in a driver's seat, you're test driving right away with the clients. You already understand, see where, where, where things are headed, right? You already anticipate the problems, the needs, and also figuring out their solution. Because not only do we have a now data to back up those types of stance and positioning, but we also know how fast is going to be uh, taking off and knowing from either industry perspective or just simply um, issues that we're seeing that so many other organizations are dealing with. It's a perfect timing to get educated and get trained. And as a result, also great, get properly adjusted to that. Do you mind sharing one of the examples? How did you did something like that most recently? Because I know you are always on top of the game, very agile in your ways. And as a result, clients and everybody else you touch tremendously benefit. I think that one of the most important ways that people can stay aware of the, the technology landscape and how it's evolving is to get their hands on it. And and unfortunately, that is a, a really hard mandate because of the fact that things are growing so fast. And it's no longer just three or four. I mean, while there are kind of three or four really game-changing AI tools, there's also hundreds of others that have kind of unique skill sets and are addressing specific problems. So uh, I, I know personally for me, I, I feel like I become significantly more knowledgeable about how something works by actually playing with it and interacting with it as opposed to just reading about it. But I think the scale here is is quickly getting to the point and it's only going to continue to increase where that's not possible to touch every single tool and every single solution. So I think it really does come down to a matter of prioritization of doing uh, a high level research of what makes the most sense for your personal use cases, for your organization's business use cases, uh, and then from there, building a short list and really starting to uh, set up things like environments in R&D or test labs that can allow you to better understand how those capabilities in practice and in execution can actually support what you're trying to do. So uh, a big advocate of, of actually taking action rather than just becoming aware through osmosis, so to speak. I love that because all of us learn better when we also have a practical application or something to uh, exercise and, and make it happen. And for everybody watching again and listening, this is a key, a key recipe, not just the gather information and then trying to make a decision. Test drive, find out uh, how it's working, what advantage and disadvantage that might be, and how can also greatly impact your company with innovation and transformation. What I wanna just ask you quickly, we run all the time into human factor. 
And from the hero standpoint and from change and resistance to change and transformation, we have now parallel, right? We don't have a luxury anymore. Are we ready? Are we willing? We're able to wise the why. Things are happening, as they say, from fire hose drinking, either you or not, is you're served. <laughs> so how do you survive that, right? And, and that human factor and transformation piece, I always want to know, because I have that mindset, but very few people do that mindset or develop over the time. And with your military background and where you are today, it's obvious that you have that mindset. What would you give suggestions and advice for everybody that are on the fence, that are not really taking this seriously, and frankly, resisting? What would you say in order to move the needle in the right direction? I would say that... It's coming whether you like it or not. There's no, uh, so I think if, if I recall correctly, I think the phrase that I used in the book is, is there's no turning back the hourglass of time. Um, unfortunately, things things are rolling forward. Things are, and we've seen, we it, it, it isn't anything new. We've seen this increasing year over year for the past several decades. I mean, it used to be that you would see significant technological changes as every century then we we started in uh, 50 60 years ago we started seeing significant changes in the decades um we're, we're now at a point where and, and of course I, I think we saw the dot-com boom technology started moving on kind of a yearly basis we're seeing big significant changes and and i think we're getting to the point where it's hard to keep up with on a week-to-week -week basis i mean things are dramatically changing there's new capabilities new uh players entering into the industry and providing new different capabilities. So I think the, you, you, you're not going to be able to do it all by yourself. Um, like I said, it's I, for me, I, I think you get the most value out of what you can put your hands on, but there's no way that at the scale at which it's already going and it's only going to get faster. Um, you're going to be able to interact with everything. So I think there is an importance on reliance on community too. I think that there are uh, a lot of great uh, content providers who have really solid opinions. And I, I think for each person who resonates with them is going to depend on their unique personality. But I would encourage anybody to kind of find those uh, those content publishers, those unique outlets that are uh, kind of a trusted advisor to you to kind of point you in the right direction of what makes sense to start investigating and uh, again, I, I think it always comes back to you know, whether it's you or it's a team that you're commissioning to do so. I, I think there is definitely an importance on getting hands-on technology. But I, I think that having that trusted advisor group, whoever that is for you, in order to filter that down to something that's manageable and something that really resonates with you is increasingly important. I love it. You're spot on. We can't do it all. And we'd, even if it takes time to consume it, to learn it a little long, then to execute it, right? But when we have a strategic partnership, when we consult and collaboratively work together and enhance our skill sets, knowledge, and experience, then we can create um, much higher probability of success, the risk, what it's needed to be, and also uh, achieve, achieve ultimately the goals that we're all after, right? With that in mind, in closing, wanted to ask you, obviously, your book is coming. It's already creating a lot of buzz. 
Uh, it's so timely, so relevant. And um, do you mind sharing when is going to be officially released? No pressure. I know you're juggling a lot of things and you're doing phenomenal work with all of it. But again, I just cannot kudo you how you bring in something forward in such a timely manner that I'm sure so many listeners and people that are watching this uh, will be absolutely appreciating. Uh, thank you. So uh, as far as the actual release date, uh, I think it was originally set for January 4th of next year, but we have gotten actually ahead of schedule on the editing process. Um, so I, I think they've actually they've moved the date up to some point in December, but I haven't heard an official launch date. Uh, so we do still have a, a few months. Um, I'm, I'm excited and ready to to get it out there, but unfortunately there is that that obligatory editing process. So we are getting through that. Um, it is already available for pre-order on uh, multiple different sites, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Wiley has their own uh, capability to order that. Um, so uh, so if if you're interested, uh, can definitely pre-order. If not, then uh, look for it in sometime in December. Thank you for listening to Legacy Leader Show. If you enjoyed the content and had a positive experience, then please leave us a positive rating. In addition, leave us positive review whenever you are listening on whatever platform there might be. Make sure your friends and family also know about the benefit and value that we provide and what we have to offer. Cheers.